Well, uh, happy new year, Sven. Happy new year. Uh, did you have a Did you have a good break? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good break. Very relaxed. Um, not quite as cold as as in Germany or in in other places. I've I've seen it's been really cold in Sweden. I, there's someone I'm following on on Mastodon, and he's been s- subjected to minus forty degrees Celsius. <laughs> oh, okay, that's that's, yeah, that's a lot colder than it is here too. Oh. Yeah, no, I I I can't stand the cold, and and just reading that gave me the shivers. <laughs> Um, it's it's not very warm here. It's going to hit um, two degrees above uh, zero on uh, Friday this week, but but it's certainly not minus forty. Yeah, no, that's just way too cold. Did you have a good break as well? Uh, yes, I did. Thank you. Nice to see family, friends, uh, spend some time away from a computer a little bit, which was uh, always nice to do. Um, uh, but ready to get back to it and raring to go for twenty twenty four. Excellent. And maybe we should start there, actually. So we should maybe talk about um, some of the things that we um, hope to get to in 2024 with the package index. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. We we used to post um, like roadmap <laughs> we did, <yes. laughs> things way back, and we did, we held that up for a, for a couple of couple of couple of quarters, but. Um, then due to the way we we organized stuff that sort of didn't well, wasn't really feasible anymore didn't make much sense anymore but i think on a yearly basis it's a nice thing to to maybe look forward what we're planning to do yes and of course all of the things that we're about to talk to today can change and will <laughs> and will exactly yeah exactly so yeah i i think just in terms of i briefly thought about what's the rough plan and uh, i think one of the things that i'd like to continue working on and we started doing that a bit is um is dependencies um Uh we'll also talk a bit about that later on in the news section we've started tracking dependencies quite early on by just capturing the resolve dependencies, which is the full dependency tree um, you get in a Swift package after package resolution. So that's the transient dependencies included and the test target dependencies. That's literally everything your package touches. And that's been in our database for quite a while, but that's also not the best thing to report really for people who are uh, inspecting a package, you know, you don't necessarily are interested in test dependencies or all the dependencies. You sort of maybe want the first first uh, direct dependencies and that sort of thing we, we're starting to pick up and we have those in the database as well now, the direct dependencies, so we can report on a bit um, in a bit more detail what we've got. But there's, there's a lot more work to do here to also prune out the test dependencies and all that. And I think that's going to be really exciting because it's one of the things that will give us a a bigger ecosystem-wide overview, you know, just to the things you can do then by looking at what packages are sort of central. They have lots of um, uh, dependees, packages that depend on them. Is that dependency? Yeah, that's dependence. No, that's dependence. Or well, whatever. Yeah, the, dependence. Dependence, that's the one. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of imagining we'd be able to to maybe draw some graphs or something around you know like these webs of and see packages that are very core um and we've talked in the past about when we talked about um the npm ecosystem and um, the crates uh, the um, rust ecosystem yeah um there's some statistical analysis that they've done in their ecosystems that would be interesting to do in in swift uh, in the swift ecosystem i'd really love to do that try and replicate that see if we see some of the same problems there with the 
um, they had these circular dependency graphs, which were kind of weird. I wonder if there's something like that in Swift as well. All that sort of stuff falls under that umbrella that I'd really love to to focus on in the coming year. And I know you've started doing a little bit of this um, already, not so much on the dependencies display in the package index, but um, so building on some of the work that we already have in the project for getting that list of complete, that, that total list of every type of dependency that we currently have. Um, that there was a nightly process, or there still is a nightly process that runs um, through GitHub Actions, which goes and tries to find any dependencies that uh, are dependents of. Uh, sorry, that depend. No, <laughs> I, I, I got it go. wrong. <laughs> it finds any packages that are not in the package index, which are depended on by other packages. Um, yeah, and that process used to take um about eight or nine hours to run something like that every night yeah yeah exactly it it's had increased to i think nine and a half hours now even because oh really wow okay we've grown since we since we started doing this yeah yeah and um yeah this is this is a long one <laughs> and i and i know that that um that uh we've well you just put some some work into and we've just put into production um a version of that script that now uses the dependency work that we do in the main package index to shortcut all of those uh, searching uh, for dependency steps and just read the dependencies out of our uh, application. And that took the job from nine and a half hours down to certainly less than half an hour, right? Yeah, it's like five minutes or something like that, because it's effectively... Right. In, in we we were previously crawling every package, downloading the package manifest and doing a package resolution to get the package resolved out of it, which is something we already do continuously in the Swift package index. So we have those things in a database, and this was effectively just ripping that out, asking the database for everything in one go, and that query is even faster. I mean, that query literally runs in in you know. 50, 100 milliseconds, and it's the downloading of the data that's maybe takes uh, takes maybe half a second, but and the remaining time is then to to validate these packages. Um, but we we have a very fast way now to find out which packages are being referenced but aren't in the index yet, and that was really really um, helpful to to get that nightly process under control. It also helped us find packages that we didn't actually find with the other process in the past because. The way the other process worked was to download the manifest of the main branch, of the latest version of the main branch. But what happens then is that we have packages in the index that are that are old, that don't have new revisions, and they never moved forward. And they were actually referencing, they had old manifests that were referencing package versions that weren't, that were only live at the time, but aren't live anymore. Um, this sounds probably way more complicated and it's hard to follow. But the thing is, we are now unearthing packages that are being referenced that we didn't actually see before. So if you are following our Swift package updates um, Mastodon account, you will see loads of new packages appearing. And those are the packages we are now finding and adding to the index because we've, we've made that change. And we've also changed, uh, we're now... Um, accepting forks as uh, that people are depending on and adding them to the index because they are, they are you know packages like any any other package and they're being used so they they should actually be in the index so we can 
properly account for um, all the uh, dependency we've got and have them in the index. And and this is the point I was going to make, and, and it's the 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 influx of uh, these additional dependent um, uh, dependency packages has really tripped me up this week and made. Uh, so when we're when I'm preparing for this uh, podcast, um, I go through the list of new packages to see what's interesting and what's been added, and with all these quite a significant number of packages, more than 100 packages being added by this uh, script. I made that job much more difficult than usual because it's a whole load of forks and uh, packages that are just depended on that that have maybe been around for years and years and years uh, that I'm, we might not feature on, on a podcast like this, but as you say, should be in the index. Um, and one thing that, and in the context of, of what are we going to work on this year, one thing that this has really highlighted for me is uh, that we quite desperately need a feature which uh, shows which packages are forks of other packages. And if we have the other package in the index, then we should also refer to that package because it's quite, uh, in fact, I, I was tripped up uh, myself by um, a fork of uh, plot, uh, John Sundell's plot library, which is an HTML um, generation library, which we use in the package index. And I was going through the uh, the list of packages and I saw plot go up and I thought, that's strange. We've definitely got plot. And I, I opened it in my browser and looked at it. And it took me a second to realize that it was my fork of plot that it had was discovered. the old fork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that come through. <laughs> and that deserves to be in the index. Um, but it's also, it, it's, it should be really obvious. Yeah. It should be really obvious that that is a fork and not a brand new project. Well, if any fork deserves to be in it, it's, it's your own, right? <laughs> Well, that's, that take, it takes my total number of packages in the index up to two. We've got left pad, which is the, which is the <laughs> test package that we have. <laughs> and, and now a fork of somebody else's work. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that feature, we, we just do need, just need to add a little, um, a little bit of extra metadata to those fork packages. So um, just be careful if you see new packages that you think should already be in the index. It may be a fork right now because we're not very we're not very clearly displaying that. Um, there's a couple of things that I'm interested in working on in, in terms of broad uh, kind of themes for this year. One is I'd love to do some more work on the package score uh, feature. Um, so we've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast uh, and in blog posts recently as well. We have a internal in fact not just internal anymore it's it's now public publicly available uh package score and um you can see the score for any package that's in the index um but the list of kind of factors that we use to score each package um could be uh improved and there's a thread open in the discussions uh forum on the package index uh, github project which we'll put a link to in the show notes um if you have opinions on that, there's already a discussion going there. Um, I would like to do some more work on uh, that this year uh, and kind of bulk up the 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 significance of not the significance because it won't be any more significant than it is at the moment, but bulk up the um, the kind of the the evaluation of uh, packages to to mm -hmm. to promote uh, better packages in the uh, index. Uh, so that's one thing I, I want to work on this year. And um, I think the other is something we've been 
kind of discussing a little bit is uh, over the t- over time. I don't know whether you remember, actually. Um, I know you will, Sven, but I don't know whether anyone else remembers that when the package index first started, um, it was entirely a metadata uh, uh, metadata only information on the package page. So we didn't actually display the readme file uh, until quite a while after we launched, um, and it, instead it was it was purely metadata. It was it was. A lot of the metadata that you see today, even build compatibility and, and those results uh, on the package page, and then a link to uh, the GitHub repository. Um, and of course, over time, we, and in fact, it was never our intention not to have the readme file on there. It was just a matter of, you know, getting things done. Um, and obviously, we did add the readme file, and uh, and here we are today. But over time, that metadata section has grown uh, and grown, and, and the compatibility matrix takes up quite a lot of space, um, and it pushes that readme a little too far down the page. So one of the things that we've been uh, chatting about this morning, actually, is um, whether we can um, look at that page design again and maybe think about trying to pull that readme file back up the page a little bit. We're not going to get rid of the metadata. There's definitely going to be metadata at the top uh, because that metadata is really important. Um, uh, But it would also be good to have at least the first few lines of the readme visible on a reasonably sized screen, uh, which is currently not the case. Yeah, definitely. I think there's ways to condense that down a bit. I think uh, especially going forward, um, we might see fewer Swift versions that we need to display, you know, that sort of stuff. And the compatibility matrix, as you mentioned, might be, might need to shrink down a bit anyway. Um, it's, we got all these Apple platforms. Maybe there's something we can do there. It's, it's, it would be nice to pull up the readme a bit more. Yeah. Agreed. But of course, I'm sure we'll do a whole load of other things as well. Yeah. Just to mention, there's there's no year without new Swift versions. So that's certainly something we'll be looking at, trying to add those as early as possible. Um, who knows when Swift 6 will come out, if it's this year. Um, rest assured, we'll be looking at compatibility info there because we, we know um, that Swift 6 will have will be potentially com- uh, uh, have um, sourcing compatibility, so it's it is possible to have syntax changes there. Um, that's allowed. So th- that's well, allowed. That's something that is that is in the cards, I, I should say. And we'll definitely make sure that we test this early, so people can can maybe use us there as the um, if they haven't they set their own CI up or or just want to rely on another service to have a look there and, and give an overview. So we're definitely trying to be prompt with um, testing for Swift 6 as much as possible. So when we've been doing a little bit of planning already with this um, and talking about Swift 6 and you know there's there's a swift 6 strict compatibility mode which is the concurrency uh checking uh that's coming in that's potentially source breaking in terms of like there were things that with swift 5 it would let you do and in swift 6 it will it will strictly stop you doing some of those things um and there's two modes you can run the swift 6 compiler in which is um with strict compatibility testing for concurrency issues on, which I believe is going to be the default for Swift 6. And then Swift 6 in Swift 5 mode, which is if you want to use the Swift 6 compiler, but you still need Swift 5 
concurrency uh, checking, um, then you can switch the Swift 6 compiler into that mode. Um, which we're not going to test for explicitly, but what we will be doing is testing the latest version of Swift 5 at that point as well. So you'll have Swift 6 compatibility with strict mode on, and then 5.9, 5.10, whatever it is at the point that um, Swift 6 comes out, we'll be testing the Swift 5 mode. Uh, have I got that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think there's, we, we don't expect there to be you know, a significant difference or any difference at all between Swift in five mode versus the latest five version at that time. So that's why we're not really going to, we're not planning to to spend effort on on running those two modes um, in parallel. Yeah, exactly. So, but of course we don't know, uh, I don't know whether the public, um, the, the, the the schedule for that has been uh, announced yet, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. So uh, it's it's something that we will do as and when uh, those those versions come out. Yeah, and uh, well, I think there's no new Apple platforms to plan for this year, right? Vision OS <laughs> just came out and is... Uh, well, the good news is we already support it. Yeah, we already do. And I, I'm not aware of any rumors about um, new Apple hardware or <laughs> OS releases that that we might be planning for. So I think on that front, we're, we're well covered at least. There is no new Apple hardware until the day that uh, Tim Cook announces it, right? <laughs> it doesn't exist until he steps on stage. That's that's how that works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think Vision Pro um, and obviously the Vision OS SDK, which did get announced, I think yesterday, um, the release date for that, which I think is February second, maybe. Um, uh, that we already um, support in our compatibility matrix. What we will do is we'll update the version of Xcode that we use to do that compatibility checking to uh, 15.2, which again, I believe was released yesterday, yeah. uh, but really no changes that we need to do there. Yeah, exactly. And my understanding is the 5.15.2 beta one, I believe that we were using already had the my understanding is how the Vision it did. OS SDK version that yes. is actually shipping. So there won't be like the compatibility right now should be should be up to date already, even you know, even when we change to the newest 5.15.2 version. That should all remain the same. Fingers crossed. That's great. There is another bit of news we may want to briefly talk about, and that's a really interesting um post I saw coming through this week on Mastodon, and that's a, a blog post about when everything becomes too much by Feroz Abu Khadije. Um, did you see that, Dave? Did you have a chance to, to look through that um, post? I did. You sent me a link to this earlier today, and I did I did give it a read, yeah. So this is really fascinating. and What a mess, eh? <laughs> what a mess, yeah. And, and this is not about pointing fingers or, or just, you know, laughing about what's going on in, in NPM. This is this is just general ecosystem stuff and npm is pretty much you know in it's a huge ecosystem like orders of magnitude bigger and is sort of the things they hit they they are going down paths that that the swift ecosystem hasn't even begun walking down yet so it's there's interesting stuff there you could say they're stress uh, testing dependency management <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yes <laughs> yes they definitely are and some of this is inherent in how the ecosystem works it's i think it is fair to say that 
node packages are smaller. You know, they, they bundle up smaller chunks of functionality into smaller packages and that by nature then have way more dependencies and all that. And that has a knock-on effect to how that works. But um, that is just just one aspect of it. And the other is just more exposure to more people that try things. And, and what this is about is that someone created an NPM package called everything, which, well, depends on everything. They have effectively made this package depend on every package in the NPM registry. And just think about what that means. If someone went on to do NPM install of that package, they would effectively DOS themselves um, because it would start downloading every package. And, <laughs> and um, this just sort of spiraled out of control because it compounded with another problem that happened in 2016, and that was the left pad incident. Ah, left pad gets a second mention of the episode. <laughs> yeah, second mention. There. <laughs> there you go. So in 2016, the NPM world broke because the author of this left pad package removed it at the time. And this was actually a package that was used in lots and lots and lots of other packages. Um, and that led to problems because then they wouldn't build anymore. And lots of CI systems, uh, is my understanding, started breaking and failing because, you know, they couldn't resolve that package at build time and all that. Um, and as a consequence of that mess at the time, they established a rule that you can't unpublish a package once another package depends on it. And now you can imagine what happened once everything started depending on every package in NPM. That meant that no package could actually be unpublished anymore. So it was effectively blocking everyone from unpublishing their packages after this. And just imagining about how, you know, one thing that was made or one rule that was implemented to fix one thing can then completely backfire if another thing goes horribly wrong or, you know, another, you could call it an abuse case happens and, um, and sort of, messes everything up. I, I don't want to be in, in the shoes of people you know, trying to manage this whole mess, but it, it must have been really horrific. Um, I think they found a solution in the end by just pulling the whole org down of these the, the people who published this. They, the people themselves actually were apologetic they, when they realized what they've done. They want to do the right thing and unpublish the package, but they couldn't themselves anymore because they'd been they'd been blocked out of unpublishing by, I guess, someone using their package or something like that. I don't remember what the I don't know what the actual uh, effect there was, but it's it was just a, a big mess. But um, quite interesting as a as a look ahead. I think it said in the post that the solution was to make the repositories that the everything repositories private. And I think that's the, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the workaround that they got to you because you can't stop somebody taking a repository private. So they must have had to deal with that situation. And I think that's what let them unwind, right. uh, unwind this. If I, if I read the post correctly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's, I, I do, I do feel for the person who did this because uh, I, I, I believe, I genuinely believe that it was done as a little bit of a lighthearted, um, <laughs> lighthearted uh, joke, or certainly it was, its intent was a lighthearted joke, um, but uh, what a mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, can you, can you imagine sitting there and suddenly realizing 
you know, it's like when that production incident happens and you suddenly realize you are connected to the wrong database when you drop the tables. And right. Sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's the sort of feeling that must go through you. I mean, unless you really do it with the intention of breaking stuff. But if if you didn't, and I, I don't think they really did, then oof, that is a, that is rough. And it's the kind of thing, I mean, certainly um, Swift is a very different dependency environment than NPM. Um, and we don't have this kind of situation or or even really the potential yet for this kind of situation. But I think it's good for us to be aware of what's happening in these other dependency environments. Um, yeah. And and certainly this one, when, as, I, as I read more and more of this post, I thought, oh, this is, oh yeah, this is really, 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 really bad. <laughs> yeah, this is not good, I would yeah. encourage you yeah. to read the post. It's really good, yeah. Yeah, we'll add a link to the show notes uh, for people to to read up on this. Shall we do some packages or? Yeah, we could do some packages. Um, actually, I have a I have a bonus extra little package, which which is not really a package recommendation uh, this uh, this this time. Uh, well, it's, but it's not in my normal theme of not recommending a package. There may be one of those coming up later, though. Um, this was something I, I spotted as I was doing a trawl through the RSS feed. Um, and I really like the marketing approach that this package has, which is to have no readme file whatsoever. So there is no information about what this package does in the readme file uh, at all. The, the name of the package is VGSL, and the package description says everything you really need to know. It's um very good Swift library, so that's all you need to know. You should import this package immediately, because <laughs> it's a very good Swift library. <laughs> Uh, so uh but but no i do have i do have three actual uh recommendations as well and the first of them is by daniel lyons and it's called plus night mode um and one thing that i um so i bought a new watch uh this year in september or october whenever they came out and um uh i don't know whether it's something specific to the new watch i think it may be to do with a new watch face but um when it's when the the ambient light in the room is dark the face and everything on it turns red um which is a really nice way to not strain your eyes in the evening or if you wake up at night or something like that and try and look at your watch um and it's a it's a so everything goes kind of monochrome but not black and white red and black um and this package by Dan, uh, Daniel is uh, a SwiftUI view modifier, which you can add to the bottom of any view hierarchy. So your entire navigation stack, for example, could have this view modifier on it called observing night mode, and you can pass a switch, uh, a Boolean in there to um, uh, to turn light, uh, night mode on or off, which is something you'd have to track yourself. So this would be an app specific feature. Um, and it basically turns every view in that view hierarchy into a red and black monochrome uh, view, no matter what the uh, original appearance of it was. Um, and I think that's lovely. I think, first of all, there's a couple of, couple of nice things. I think it's a great feature. Yeah. And, but secondly, 
I, I love the kind of cascading nature of SwiftUI view modifiers in that if you add them to the top level, then you can just do something like this, which would be very difficult to manage in UIKit. Uh, I mean, you could still do it in UIKit, but it would not be as easy as adding one view modifier in UI, UIKit. So I like that. And I thought um, I thought it was worth worth mentioning. Yeah, I love that about SwiftUI as well. It's I think the redacted stuff works the same way, right? Where you it does. can yeah. um, stub in, you know, like, um, I don't know how best to describe a redacted um, UI elements, you know, like text is not displayed as, as text, but as placeholders, like rectangles and stuff. I think that's that's really nice and really powerful that you can just tack this on and everything just changes into a different mode. I think that's really fascinating and, and super useful. I hope apps take advantage of this because I'd love to see this feature in apps that I use. Yeah, I have the same. I, the, the, I love this about the, the watch where it turns red. Um, it's really nice. Um, right, my first pick is called Package-Benchmark um, by uh, Joachim Masila. And this is a great package when you're looking to benchmark your code. Um, what it effectively does, it gives you a function or uh, instrumentation to, to run a closure that gets benchmarked and it has supports many, many metrics like CPU time, both, you know, like actual CPU time or wall clock time, throughput, memory allocations, threads, in like how, how many threads you're using, um, disk stats, all sorts of things. Like there's an amazing range of um, metrics you can track. And I've been following this package for quite a long time, but I've always delayed talking about it because I wanted to really give it a try. And um, it was clear from looking at the README that this is super comp comprehensive approach to benchmarking, but yet you'd also need to invest a little time to understand what it reports and, and why that is important. That sort of held me back um, until I actually sat down and, and tried using it. Um, and it's not because the package itself is making this complicated. It's it's because the topic is actually complicated and, and more complicated than you might think. And that these details aren't ones that you, you should just gloss over and just take, um, you know, like an average or, or minimum when you benchmark stuff, because that's the thing you sort of right. reach for. You know, I, I certainly, you know, whenever I benchmarked something in the past, I, you know, you run it a few times, you look at it, well, there's not too much jitter. I'll take the, the best one, you know, you, you never really know what you're doing. I mean, you know, typically when you measure, you, you do it a few times, you maybe calculate an error rate based on the standard deviation, that sort of stuff. The thing is, when you do this, there are certain assumptions that go in when that is actually valid and when it isn't. And, and mostly, almost always when you're measuring um, benchmarks, these assumptions are wrong because because of the way the distributions are shaped, you can't actually calculate a standard deviation. Um, and it doesn't make sense. And the framework really leans into that. So what it does when you run a benchmark, it gives you um, so-called percentiles. So it gives you a range of percentiles uh, and measurements for those. So what that means, a percentile is, mm, let's say percentile 50 means like you're, you're halfway through your distribution. Everything is... Um, is as least as fast as this 
are, are not slower and, and the higher percentiles, for, in, for instance, P100, 100 percentile means this is the slowest result you got. And the first one, like which is called P0, is the fastest result that you've got. So effectively, what this does, it gives you certain points along the curve of your distribution. And it really drives home the point that you shouldn't be thinking of your distribution as like a normal shape, you know, like normal distribution. Uh -huh. But that is is really it's it's really, really different. Just forget that this is a normal distribution because it won't be. And that's what I really liked. It's it's not something you just drop in and then get numbers out and, and you walk away with the numbers because it gives you many numbers and you really need to understand what you're trying to do and especially what you're trying to, to measure, what your your requirements are for your system, how fast it is actually supposed to be and, and how fast is the slowest result supposed to be. And, and you know, it's it's making you think about the, the thing you're actually trying to achieve. And I found that really interesting. And um, I had a couple of questions to uh, Joachim. Um, ahead of time, and because I, I was, I wasn't sure what this actually means and how to interpret the results. And he was super helpful, gave me some pointers, and we'll add these to the show notes. There's an interesting talk about um, by Jill Tenney, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, about why normal distributions. These aren't normal distributions. Why you should be looking at percentiles and, and what you should be looking for when you do run these kinds of tests and. Um, yeah, I think this is this is really great. This is one of these packages where you where you start looking at the package because you think it's useful, and then you end up going down a rabbit hole and learning really a lot about a domain that you didn't know a lot about right. yet. And sure. that really gives me just looking at the package and the documentation of it, and the the breadth of it. You know, like these all these different metrics and the care that has been taken to give you controls and knobs and you know allowing you to set these thresholds make it configurable gives you really high confidence that this is this is a really worthwhile thing to invest time in and and use and I, I know I've seen this pop up um, in a few places this package is it's been being used in in quite a few projects to measure benchmarks so um I think it's really fascinating and give this a look if you have um if you want to benchmark stuff, I think this is the perfect place to start. That's great. Are we going to um, use it with, because uh, we have uh, query performance tests in our um, code base, right? Yes, we do. Um, I I might try that. There's some another place where I want to, to use it first, but it's, it's certainly something I'd be interested in, in doing more because right now we're doing really the the, the bare minimum of just effectively we're not as much benchmarking we're we're sort of snapshotting we're baselining you know we're trying yeah. to to establish how fast is this if I run it once and then we record that time and we effectively see if we get slower so we're not really ensuring that we're we're hitting a certain speed where we're tracking how we're getting slower over time. The, the way I like to look at it is that it's it's more of a um, an indicator than an actual test. It is yeah. you should be aware that things have got slower. Yeah, I think if I was asked what's this for, it's I'd say this is to see if we suddenly have a query that runs two times slower because that we would see and that would be important. And this has actually happened 
Um, and, and that's what this is for really to not accidentally, because SQL queries are really easy to just tweak a little bit and then have huge um, sure. performance yeah. regressions that you don't notice, especially you won't notice it if you're if your data set is small. And what we're actually doing is we run it against our staging database, which has a comparable data set to production. So we would see if a query is is really bad all of a sudden, we would see that by looking at the, um, we're not looking at the runtime, we're looking at the cost, which also isn't perfect because the cost can be, is an estimate, it can be wrong, but it is a, in my testing, it has, be, has been a, fairly decent indicator of, of what's actually going on. So this turned into a much longer packaged yes. recommendation than usual, but uh, we haven't finished yet. I, Cause I was going to say the only, the only slight downside to that is, is that because that CI step is not a uh, mandatory CI step, um, what we quite often do is something will slip by just a few milliseconds and it will start the test failing. And it takes us a few weeks to maybe get around to updating those benchmark scores. And so if anything yeah. doubled the query performance in those few weeks, we'd never know. <laughs> well, actually we would, yeah. we'd never know until we came to update the benchmark scores. And at that point we'd realize, and and there we go. But, but, uh, but yeah, but look, I mean, who, who's perfect, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this, that's the thing. This is hard to, to automate because a, we want to, don't want to be running this all the time. Um, uh, like auto updating, right? You need to review these new numbers, right? You need to put them in somewhere. We need to baseline somehow. And because um, Swift Package Manager doesn't have the same affordance to do these, um, uh, what's it called in Xcode, where you can you can baseline tests, right? You can have performance tests in in Xcode and, and baseline them automatically, right? Because we can't use that um, due to the way we're running tests. We sort of have to do that a bit manually. Otherwise, that would be really great if we could do that and then just review the changes and approve them. That would be ideal. Right now, we can't. I mean, the best thing we could probably do is is write a, like the Point Free Co guys have done this auto snapshotting thing. We could, but you know, I've already spent way too much time instrumenting this. I think I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take it even further. This is I do this once a week and that's that's fine. So it's not too much work at the moment. So my next uh, package recommendation uh, is by Navan Chowan. And um, this is something that I never expected to see in a Swift package. And I was I was kind of delighted when I saw it. Uh, it's called Swift Gopher. Um, and it is a, uh, a less than one month old uh, implementation of the Gopher, both server and client, <laughs> written in Swift. Now, I'm pretty confident that there are people listening who will not remember Gopher. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember it, Sven? I do remember it. I saw it early on, but I actually never used it. I know it's one of these Ethernet, um, not Ethernet, uh, internet protocols, you know, like FTP, yeah. HTTP, um, that sort of stuff. But I don't, what, what did Gopher actually do? Um, it was, I, I don't remember. I also, so I did, I think I did use it like once or twice. Uh, I remember on the old uh, Unix machines at uh, university, um, I think there were still a couple of Gopher. I think Gopher was mainly over by the time I even got access to the internet. So uh, w when I was at university, which is a, a very long time ago, um, uh, 
the internet was really only just becoming something that you could get access to, even in academical uh, institutions. Um, certainly there was no home uh, internet access at the time. Um, and Gopher was kind of dying at that point. So it was really early. Um, but what it was, was it was a precursor to the web. Um, and you could uh, Gopher into a server and it was like a step up from Telnet. So Telnet, you basically got a remote console on the server. That's what Telnet basically did. did. Um, and Gopher was a way that you could fetch information and then post information back to it in a text-based interface um, in the very early days of the uh, uh, the web. Um, but it's not dead, apparently, uh, because Navan has um, written both the client and the server, um, and you can run a Swift Gopher server, uh, and you can connect to it with the Swift Gopher client, and you can fetch information from your Gopher <laughs> <Nice>. server. <laughs> It's a bit like like these um, very early BBSs, or I, I have no yeah, and no idea how that actually used to work. So I do remember those. So that was the um, that was really one of my first experiences with the internet, which was the uh, Telnet uh, BBS systems. Uh, the, the one that I the only one that I remember by name uh, was <laughs> was a, a Telnet BBS called Skynet, which is a very original name for a. <laughs> for a bbs and um you would connect um effectively using you'd effectively get a, a kind of shell into the server and it would mm. it would be this um bbs system that you could leave messages for people you could read messages you could send messages you could post on public forums i think but they were very you know it was a very different to anything you'd see today but it was all through a um a kind of text uh, a a terminal style window and i remember the the speeds that we were uh, able to have at the time you could see the the terminal screens drawing character by character so oh god yeah 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 <laughs> it was it was early early days of the internet <laughs> well go for i didn't have that in the cards as a as a package i i was pretty confident that that would be all mine yeah <laughs> well, this is one of my traditional um, recommendations, which is not a recommendation. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> Although I do think we should we should maybe uh, uh, consider supporting Gopher for the package index. So we, we don't neglect those people who still want to use a Gopher client to fetch package information. You can fetch your package of the day. Exactly. My second pick is... Uh called WebSocket, WebSocket Actor System, and it's by Stuart A. Malone. Um, and that's, I, I loved seeing this. So I've been following Apple's distributed actors package with interest for quite a while now. Um, but in the past, I've, I've really struggled. I've tried a few times, but I've struggled with creating a proper example that would work across nodes. So the repository comes with with an example, tic-tac-toe, the Apple Apple's distributed actors package. And I've played around with it but I've, I've never really gotten it to work properly in a in a local setup and and Stuart has really done all the hard work here and created an a package and then also shipped an example and explained how to use it where you can set up um, a distributed actor system based on web sockets here to communicate between nodes um, where nodes really is just another distributed actor um, instantiation. So it's really fascinating because from a dev point of view, you're effectively just calling into an actor and you don't even realize or know whether it's local or 
in another process or on another machine uh, across the network. And that's the beauty of this, of these distributed actors. It abstracts away all of this and, and all of this message passing and, and encoding, decoding is, is handled by the library, um, which is really nice. And Stuart has chosen WebSockets here as a transport and, um, I think JSON under the hood as a, as a exchange format, but you actually see none of that. So you really just have actors and you, you know, you, you connect um, and then call functions with try await, you know, like normal async functions um, on the actor that you've just resolved across the network potentially. Um, now, I haven't tested, I've actually used this in a little example to see how it works, but I haven't tested what this means in terms of efficiency, resilience, error handling, that sort of stuff. It does claim to automatically reconnect after failure, so it has some affordance for this. Um, and the other thing that's really nice about this, as opposed to a normal traditional HTTP REST API, for instance, is that you can call methods, actor methods on the service you connect to, but the other service, you know, can also do this. So it's actually really nice if you want to have um, a server that calls back to you as a client. You know, imagine it's like a push mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas normally you talk to an API, you'd have to pull the API to understand if something's there for you, you know, if something has something to respond. But in this case, these two nodes are really peers. So if there's something happening on the server, it can actually call in to the client and say, look, like this just happened, you know, handle it. So that's really nice. And that might open up um, use cases that are that are quite powerful. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to highlight it because I've, I'm really interested in the distributed actors and I haven't seen a lot of packages actually using it or, or even, you know, like proper applications using it. And um, maybe this package WebSocket actor system can be the... Uh, a building block for someone who's who's doing something with it. I have sort of a couple of ideas how we might actually be using it in the future. That's why I'm I'm super interested in this this whole domain, and I've I've really loved seeing this package come around. Are you ready to share those ideas? Well, I mean, it's it's no secret we're running a build system, right? And right now our build system. <laughs> I figured is, that would uh, be it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this because we we have. Um, we have components that talk to each other um, and I we are currently using uh, GitLab as our queuing system and if we ever have need to change that I'm I'm sort of toying with the idea that rather than building some sort of HTTP based system maybe this would be a good use for actors where the actors are the builders and they report back that sort of thing I have to I have to talk to people who know more about these kind of systems if that's actually a good idea, but it strikes me as something that that might work really well um, for us here. I, I don't know. I think these things make me overly nervous because they feel... I, I, there's no judgment here on on the actual reliability of this because I'm completely uninformed on the actual reliability. But my <laughs> perceived reliability is... is I'm, I'm suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this This is why I, I said I haven't tested this in terms of efficiency, resilience and reliability. I think that's really um, a key thing to understand. But it's also true that distributed actors is based on 
tried technology. So it's there are actor systems out there already. And Conrad, um, who I, I, his last name uh, escapes me right now, at Apple, who's working on these systems, he has lots of experience with this. And and this is yes, this is Apple's adaptation of actors, and and this is not entirely novel is what I'm trying to say. Like, this is not like completely uncharted territory. This is Swift's take on on a system that exists. I think Erlang has this in a certain sense. Um, there is certainly a, a Swift spin to it, but I, I think we're not, you know, like complete greenfield here. I think there's lots of reasons to approach this with um, with interest and and see how it actually works and and understand especially if this is a good fit right because i think it's also important to to stress that distributed actors aren't intended to replace every distributed system right there are reasons why http is really good because i think if one reason i can think of where where you probably wouldn't want to replace it if you need caching that sort of thing like this or proxying you know like HTTP as a protocol allows you to do lots of things where your services don't even know that they're happening because it's it's just a plain standard protocol. You couldn't, I think, insert anything like that into a distributed actor system and, and expect it to still work, right? They really rely on on talking to the other end of, yeah. of the system that is in, in, as the same part of the system. There's no expectation of this being proxied or or load balance or anything like that is my understanding again i i might get a i might need to talk to, <laughs> to people who understand this way better than i do to really get a feel for this we just continue with our reputation of the best research podcast in the world <laughs> <laughs> um, and with that i think we should probably wrap it up for uh, this episode um we will be back in a couple of weeks with some more news and some more package recommendations. Uh, but until until then, we will say goodbye for now. Yep. Goodbye. See you in two weeks. All right. Bye-bye.